Well, this morning we are in Romans chapter 5, and we come to verses 15 through 21, and this will be our final look at this section of Scripture. You don't need to applaud. You can just privately praise the Lord. This is one of the sections, at least, you know, you've had a warm-up this morning. You know, it's, what, 10.45, 11, so you kind of got going. You've had a few cups of coffee. You're ready for the challenges of this text. I'm thankful. You know, we, we prayed especially for the first hour just to take on the riches of this section. This is, again, I think, where we all earn our theological degree coming into Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, we are forced into topics and discussions that we wouldn't normally go into, but because we are a church committed to expositing the Word of God and going verse by verse, section by section, we're led into this marvelous thought that Paul draws out here. What we see ultimately in the riches of this is the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the superiority of the gospel of grace, the riches of what Christ has accomplished. Before we see the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the grace of God given to us, we have to see the darkness of the human condition, the true depths of our condemnation, the true difficulties. And what we've learned in this section is that, uh, indeed, the bad news is really bad. The condition of humanity is dire, No one can escape. All are under the corrupting influences and effects of Adam. None have escaped it other than Christ, who was, again, born from above. Paul is not rehashing our condemnation. He is showing us the original source of it. He is showing us the very origin of sin and his corrupting influence here. And again, it's not a joyful picture to look at. It is, again, a a despairing picture. But it's in that despairing state, in that state of darkness, that the light of God's grace shines richly. And we see the riches of what God has accomplished. What Paul does here in Romans 5 is he demonstrates for us over and over again that by the actions of one, by the actions of Adam, all of humanity was cast into condemnation, judgment, and death. It is inescapable in these verses. In fact, notice from verses 15 through 19, five times he makes this connection. As if, you know, it's almost like he's uh, a wife speaking to a husband just going to have to tell you five times until you finally get it. I didn't use that illustration the first hour because my wife was here, but I'm using it this hour (laughs) so as to indicate to you I get it. Paul had to state this over and over again to drive home the point because mainly I would think he knows our own hearts. This kind of news we just push against. I don't want to hear this. Notice what he says in verse 15. For... If by the transgression of the one, the many died. Why did the many die? Well, the transgression of the one caused the many to die. Verse 16, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. 
Where did condemnation come from? It came from the judgment, from the one transgression. Verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Over and over again, Paul is reiterating this statement. By the action of the one, death came. By the action of the one, condemnation came. Verse 18, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to, notice, all men. All are led into this because of the one transgression. The one individual who committed the one transgression brought condemnation to all men. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's inescapable. And it's at a point, as Paul brings this out, it's, it's stunning. I mean, Paul, you've already made it clear to us back in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, there's none righteous, not even one, there's none who escapes, all have sinned, all have turned aside, you know, etc. You've already talked about the depths of our sinful condition and the practice of sin. Then we come into chapter 5, and you keep reminding us over and over again of this condemnation and judgment. Why? It's despairing. But it's in the midst of all of this that Paul is drawing out this principle that he's building on, that is, by the actions of the one, many are condemned, or the actions of the one, many are redeemed. It's going to show the greatness of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he gets to the second Adam, he is showing us the effects of the first Adam, the one who's brought condemnation into the world, the one who acted as a head, a representative of all of the humanity, acted in such a way that he brought condemnation, he brought corruption, he brought guilt, he brought judgment, he brought death. Adam brought for all of humanity the falling condition of corruption and guilt. It isn't just enough that we are sinners. It is more than that. We are guilty by association to Adam because we're in Adam. The stain of Adam is upon us, us of humanity, all those who are outside of Christ, all those who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ are in this first Adam. I thought about this guilt by association, this guilt by being... uh, you know, connected to another, and it, to use a sports illustration, I don't like sports illustrations because half the group don't know them, and then the other half gets offended by them, but I'm going to use it anyways. I was thinking about, I grew up as a child, I, I grew up from the womb a Lakers fan. You can boo later, but for now, the um, I grew up a Lakers fan. I, always, I loved uh, Magic Johnson and the whole team, but there, our dreaded enemies were the Celtics. Right, we, we just hated the Celtics, particularly a player on the Celtics, Larry Bird. When he gives himself the moniker Basketball Jesus, there's just another reason to hate him. You know? So, you know, and to think about Larry Bird being associated with the Celtics, I thought about, well, what if he ever transferred over to the Lakers? I wouldn't accept him. I'd let him score for our team. I'd let him win some things for us. But I wouldn't accept him because he came from the dreaded team. 
He would always be from that team. He would always have that stain. Even if he was in our colors and he was playing on our court and he was part of our group, he was always, in my mind, from that team and therefore could never be accepted. It's stained by association to that group. Well, that is humanity. Stained by its association to Adam. Under corruption in Adam, under guilt, under condemnation, under judgment. Even if you cleaned up all the outside and then you got everything in order, you were still under this corruption. And the only way to be delivered out of the effects of that first Adam is through the work of the second Adam. And it's that attention that Paul takes us to from 15 to 21. He shows us the superiority of the work of the second Adam. who rescues us, delivers us, cleanses us. So it would be, to use our kind of illustration here, it would be like coming along and taking Larry Bird and never going to Boston, but he always went to the Lakers and he was always a Laker for life. So when you looked at him, he was completely set free. That's the idea. When Christ comes and rescues us, he sets us entirely free that we are completely distant from the first Adam. We are now in the second Adam. Guiltless, innocent, filled with grace, filled with life, completely redeemed because of the marvelous work of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul takes us in these particular verses. As he takes us into this, he takes us and he keeps driving home this principle, this principle idea that the effects of the one or the actions of the one affect the many. That principle we saw last week is at work in the world around us. We see it in politics. We see it in government. We see it in family. We see it in work. We see it in the context of the church. The effects of a few impact the many. Some still think, I, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea that, and we struggle with the idea that the, we're born into this state. It seems unfair that one would be born into such a state of guilt and corruption. We secretly like the idea, well, at least someone would be born innocent and get to make a choice. It seems fair that way. Well, that's not life. Let me just illustrate for you that this isn't life. Which one of you chose your parents at conception? Not a single one of us chose our parents. We didn't choose our biological parents. You can probably pick a family to adopt you. I mean, I've asked Bill Gates many times to adopt me. <laughs> Elon Musk, you can adopt me if you like. Which one of you chose your DNA? In fact, as I said, I grew up, I liked sports growing up. I was not given the sports body. I was given the sports mindset and the sports desire, but not the sports ability. If I had the choice uh, growing up to select my DNA, I'd look more like Shaquille O'Neal right now than I do. I would pick a DNA package that reflected the very attributes I wanted to be successful in a particular area. We didn't choose that. Which one of you chose your birth order? Which one of you decided to be first or last or in the middle? None of us. And which one of you chose your family? And again, no disrespect to my parents, but if I was choosing, I'd be more of a royal today. 
picking one that I get to rule on the throne and exercise some authority. I would pick a, a particular family that had a few more benefits to it. I didn't pick my family. None of us did. We didn't pick our gender, though many today are trying to fight against that. We didn't pick what country we were born in. We didn't pick what time period we were born in. And yet all of these things affect our life. All of these influence our decisions. All of these influence the quality of our life. All of these influence our attitudes towards life. All of these things affect us significantly. Imagine your life, how different it would be if you were born into a family that uh, was an ISIS Philosophical difference would be radical. The location difference would be radical. You would probably be walking around with guns. Some Americans would cheer that, but it's for a different reason. You see, none of that was you walk around and say this is unfair. But this is the principle of life. This is in God's order and design. All of humanity is directed in the providence of God and Each person cannot escape these effects. Cannot escape the effect of sin. We cannot escape the providential directing of God. And in this case, though, as hopeless as the condition of being found in the first Adam is, the glorious solution and the superiority of this Christ is demonstrated here from verses 15 through 21. And so I just want to walk through the rest of our time this morning, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. And then the great, and we should ultimately see at the end of this, the greatness of the gospel that we proclaim. Because in Christ alone is hope. There's hope in no one else. There's hope in nothing else. There's no hope in our own efforts and our own abilities. There's no hope in the law. There's no hope in some sense that we can better organize ourselves. As if just, you know, changing our team would change our nature. It's not. You need a tire transformation, and that's what is brought to us in the second Adam, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we saw the backdrop of the ugliness of what came in the first Adam, it should only heighten our appreciation for the greatness and the gift that is given to us in Jesus Christ. The third point in our series then is the solution. The second Adam and the spread of righteousness in life. What is the solution to the sin problem that has permeated all of humanity, that has spread to everybody? What is the solution? The solution is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the spread of righteousness and life through him. Now, now in verses 15 through 17, Paul draws our attention to the solution, and he points out to us there are three things that Christ gives to us, three riches, Three graces, three benefits that are superior to the gift that we received in Adam. The first gift brought death, and the first gift brought debt. The first gift brought condemnation and judgment. The second, that that which is found in Christ brings glorious riches to us. First one is evidence in verse 15. Notice what verse 15 says. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to 
the many. On one hand, Paul says, Adam gives the gift of a transgression. But on the other hand, Christ gives the gift of life, the gift of grace to the many. One gives debt, the other gives grace. Paul here begins to do this in this section, begins to show a series of contrasts. Both 15, 16, and 17, there are contrasts. He's contrasting the two atoms. Verse 15, for if by much more. Then verse 16, on the one hand, but on the other hand. Verse 17, for if by much more. So whatever it is that Adam has given you, the first Adam, much more or greater than Christ gives. This is the emphasis that Paul makes here. Christ is superior. He gives more. Whatever it is that Adam does, and it's bleak, and it's ugly, and it leads to destruction, there is something greater in Jesus Christ. He gives more. First, what is demonstrated in verse 15, what he gives here is a grace gift. I mean, that's a bit redundant. That is from the Department of Redundancy right there, because that is a grace gift. This is a gift of grace. He is, he is lavished us with overwhelming grace. That is the first truth. So that whatever Adam gave, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us a gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. He's lavished us with grace. He's lavished us with favor. This is the first principle idea that we are then as what makes Christ superior or the solution superior because it is filled with the lavish kindness of God's grace gifted to us. It's not earned. It's not worked for. It is the outpouring of the expression of the gift of God, the grace of God. Adam gave to us, as verse 15 indicates, Adam gave to us the transgression. Adam, from that transgression, brought death. Adam only gave to us debt, and a debt that led to death, but much more, God gave us grace. God lavished us with grace. He lavished us with favor. And again, the word grace, charis, the word gift, charisma, it is a grace gift. It is the lavished idea that he has poured out his favor upon us. It is undeserved favor. That's what is found in Jesus Christ. What is found in Jesus Christ is lavished, undeserved favor to his people. That's what sets Christ apart, makes him superior, makes him greater. So that whatever debt that Adam gave, the first Adam gave, Christ comes with a superior grace, a superior reward. That's what's found in him. And I love this because this language Paul keeps on emphasizing here the grace of God and the gift of grace. In fact, all three verses, 15, 16, 17, emphasize a gift and of grace. Again, at the end of verse 15, and the gift by the grace of the one man. The beginning of verse 16, the gift is not like 
uh, at the end of verse 16. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions. Into verse 17, in the middle of it, much more those who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The language is over and over again. This is a gift. This is grace. This is God giving to you mercy and grace. It's not earned. It's not something that we accomplished on our own. It is something that is lavished kindly through Jesus Christ to us. So that ultimately we could describe this. What is a Christian A Christian is one who stands in the superior grace of God. The one who is found favor in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. This is what makes Christ superior to the first Adam. But there's more. Verse 16. We see the superiority of grace evidenced in innocence rather than guilt. Christ not only gives us the abundance of grace and a gift of grace, but he also gives us righteousness, innocence. Notice verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Adam brought guilt. Adam brought debt. Adam brought a corruption. And Adam brought condemnation and judgment. That's what Adam brought. But Christ, on the other hand, Christ brings righteousness. He brings justification. He brings deliverance from condemnation. He brings a a righteous judgment to his people who are set free, declared righteous, able to stand before God, innocent. I mean, think about this. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are able to stand before God as if we never sinned. And not only as if we never sinned, but as if we perfectly obeyed all that God had required. Completely innocent. So that the stain of Adam's transgression is completely wiped out so that God will look upon us not in the first Adam but in the second Adam as if our entire lives we were perfect and complete. Entire lives we were innocent and righteous. Our entire lives living uprightly. This is the grace gift given to sinners given to Adam's progeny who had turned from their sin and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This was, again, this is the solution to the sin problem is the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Notice uh, at the end of verse 16, but on the other hand, the free gift arose, notice, from many transgressions. I mean, this is the contrast of the two Adams. The first Adam living in a state of perfection, living in a state of innocence, sinned against holy God and brought in transgression and brought in wickedness. The second Adam, in a state of corruption, when all around was filled with wickedness, when many transgressions were happening all around, he brought justification. He brought righteousness. First Adam, again, having no excuse 
can't blame his environment. He can't blame the circumstances around. Having no excuse, sinned against God. The second Adam, having plenty of excuses, chose to honor God. Righteously, willingly, laid down his life so that we would be justified. Christ brings grace. Christ brings justification. He brings innocence. He brings righteousness. Thirdly, indicates that Christ is superior because he also brings life. Notice again what makes Christ superior, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam brought death. It's not just enough that he brought a debt. It's not just enough that he brought transgression, that he brought condemnation, he brought judgment, that he also brought death. The fruit of being in Adam is the fruit of death. Brings death. It's all that Adam brings is a debt. Debt that he keeps stacking up. Jesus brings freedom. Jesus gives a gift that brings life. It brings freedom. While the first Adam brought guilt, the second Adam brought innocence. While the first Adam brought condemnation, the second Adam brought justification. While the first Adam brought death, the second Adam brought life. A life that reigns. And we can see death around. We can understand the effects, and we can see the effects of the first Adam around because we can see death. We, we fear death. We understand death is all around us. I mean, do you ever find it interesting? I find it interesting how uh, the natural heart is longing to escape the stings of death. We're entertained by various ideas. Finding the fountain of youth, for example. Finding a tree of life. Finding something that would give us eternal life. We are within our own beings longing for the escape from death. And it is here, Paul indicates to us, that escape from death comes through the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Christ brings deliverance. He brings life. He solves all the problems that Adam had created. And the greatest of which is, again, that fear of death that reigns. Whatever Adam had done, and however deep he had taken us in the hole, whatever he had done and, and plunged humanity into corruption, Christ has overcome, and has overcome it abundantly. As 17 again indicates there, it's this grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. The question is, well, what's this life? What is this life that is referring to here? And Paul doesn't really answer it in this particular context, what this life is. But the rest of the scriptures give indication of what exactly this life is. It is both spiritual life and eternal life. By the way, it, as we've been indicating from our context, what Adam brought was spiritual death and eternal death. Adam brought spiritual death. Death reigned in the world. Death spread to all men. All died spiritually. We saw that a couple of weeks back when we saw what was received from Adam in verse 12. He brought death. 
initially spiritual death that then also leads to physical death and eventually eternal death. So what does Christ bring? Well, he brings the opposite. He brings life. We saw this this morning, John chapter 3. Remember John chapter 3, verse 3, when Jesus said there, Truly, truly, I say to you, one, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does one need? They need to be born again. They need a new life. How is a Christian described? We'll turn over to 1 Peter. I want to show you this. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a Peter's description of a believer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter, writing to the church, says to the church in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, notice, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is the Christian received? Well, Peter says it, God has caused us to be born again. How did he do that? Well, turn over to verse 23 of chapter 1, and Peter tells us that. For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. It was the word of God proclaimed to us, that God used to cause us to be born again. Just to show you one other passage, turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And verse 5 says this, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took the Word of God, preached to us, and He has caused us to be born again. This is newness of life. In one sense, life reigns through Jesus Christ because he gives us a spiritual life, a new life. A believer then is described as one who has been born again, regenerated by God. And this was done, again, as a work of God's grace through the word of God, through the spirit of God, as a result of the work of Christ. That is one aspect of life. But I think here, back in Romans 5, the other aspect is that of eternal life. Uh, turn over to First Thessalonians 4. Let me show you this. The anticipation of eternal life. All believers have an anticipation of eternal life. First Thessalonians 4, particularly verses 13 through 17, Paul comforts the church with this idea, this idea of our anticipation of eternal life. The church in Thessalonica had, as all churches do, they had lived long enough that they started to see various members of the church die. And as people died, there was wonder, well, what's going to happen to them? Did they miss the, re miss the resurrection? Did they miss the rapture, the coming of Christ? They died before he returned. What's going to happen to them? To which Paul gives some words of encouragement to them. It says in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about these are those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and notice, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. What words are we comforting one another with? With the words of anticipation of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Those who are dead are going to be raised up first and they're going to be brought to Christ and those who remain will be caught up with him. There's a hope that Christ brings, the reign of life, the spiritual life for those who are in Christ that leads to eternal life. Turn back to Romans 5 then. What is it that we received in Jesus Christ? We received the reign of life. We have this new principle of life at work within us, this new principle of life, newness of spiritual life within us. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. We've been born again as the Word of God was preached to us. And we anticipate the hope of eternal life when we are going to be in the presence of God, eternally living with God. This is the gift given to us through Christ. First, Adam brought death. First Adam brought condemnation and judgment. The second Adam brings the anticipation of life. He brings innocence, righteousness. He brings grace abundantly. That's what makes Christ superior. He solves all the problems that the first Adam brought and delivers us. Now in verses 18 and 19, it moves on to our next point, that vindicates Jesus Christ. Paul goes in to vindicate and point out the superiority of the second Adam. This is the proof of the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ, and what, makes, what proves that he is superior is just the contrast of the two. And this is really, verse 19 is the pinnacle point of this whole section. This is the theme that Paul was just driving to to get us to verse 19. Verse 18 and 19, this is this then. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's the first, in verse 18, here is the first contrast. All right, you get your pick. You got two Adams. The first one, he brings transgression and death, and death reigns through him. The second Adam, well, he, this one, brings abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness and the reign of life comes through him. Through his one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Here's the two. What makes Christ superior? His superior gifts. He brings life. First brings death. The second one brings life. First, there is no hope, the only hope of condemnation. There's only the hope of, of judgment. There's only the hope of death. The second brings the hope of life. But more than that, what makes Christ superior is what happens in verse 19. For as 
through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. I love this word, made, to be made. It's kathistemi. Kathistemi is used a few times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 and 47, for example. And in that context, it's used of, of a master who appoints a servant over his household. And the word appointed there is this word, kathistemi. He was made head over the household. He was appointed as a head over the household while the master was gone. The same word is used in, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. It's in the context of establishing deacons. And there are those who were appointed as deacons, made as deacons in the church. That's Acts 6.3. Or Titus 1 verse 5, speaking of the appointing of elders. It's all this exact same word. One who is made, one who is appointed, one who is regarded as. Now with that mindset, look again at verse 19. It says this, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. The many were made sinners. Why are we sinners? Well, you can say we're sinners because of what we do. But more than that, we are sinners because of the act of Adam. Why does humanity, why is humanity corrupt? Why is it fallen? Well, it's through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners or appointed as sinners. You say, well, that's, that's unfair. Well, so is the second part. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. That's equally as unfair. And this is the principle, again, of headship. Christ, all those who are in Christ are appointed as righteous. They are made righteous, declared righteous. This is the, the driving principle that Paul was using in this whole section. Adam brought death. Adam brought corruption. Adam brought guilt. Adam brought condemnation. Adam brought despair. Christ, Christ brings righteousness. Christ makes us righteous. Christ delivers us. He brings life. He brings grace. He brings innocence. He brings justification. Christ is superior because he delivers us from the condemnation that is found in Adam. He sets us free. And Paul, just to kind of close out this thought, Paul says there is only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that he said back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he is not ashamed of, the gospel of God's righteousness that delivers sinners. And it is superior to all other messages, particularly superior to the law. And he brings up the law here in verses 20 through 21 because he goes back to his Jewish audience and he says to his Jewish audience, you cannot be delivered by the law. The law cannot rescue. In fact, notice what he says in verse 20. This is the result to this whole argument he's making. The result is a gospel of grace which is superior to the law. For the law came, verse 20, so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, 
The contrast of the gospel of God versus the works of the law is the law came to only create more sin. The law, again, didn't make the righteous innocent. We saw that in verses 13 through 14. There were people who sinned even before the law existed. Before the law of Moses came, there were still sinners. The law didn't create sin. The law isn't evil. We're going to see that in chapter 7. It's not the law that is evil. But the law can't deliver. There is no ability of man to change his condition. Again, it's back to my illustration for the Lakers and the Celtics. doesn't matter how many points that Larry Bird scored in a Lakers uniform. He's still a Celtic. He can't change his nature. He can't change where he came from. He can't change that original source. The same thing here. It doesn't matter what humanity did. It doesn't matter how well humanity practiced from here. He couldn't remove himself from the stain of being in Adam. And it's the law that demonstrated that. As the law came and the law exposed sin, it only exposed more and more sin and enticed man to more and more corruption. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The greater the sin, the greater the corruption, the greater the condemnation, the greater the judgment, the more superior the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is the hope of every Christian. It's the hope of every believer that we stand in the superior grace of God found in and through Jesus Christ. That's how we stand. We, we reign, we live in this grace so that we have embraced the gospel of God's grace found in Jesus Christ that has set us free from the reign of death. We're not under condemnation anymore in Jesus Christ. Now you think, you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm pleased that I am delivered from the, the condemnation in Adam. I'm delivered from the judgment. Uh, I'm delivered from the reign of death. I am given a life, I'm given a spiritual life, and I have an anticipation of eternal life. So why do I still sin? Well, we'll answer that in chapters 6 through 8, because that is what chapter 6 through 8 is all about, the work of sanctification, the work of the gospel at work within our own hearts, working itself out. That is the next step. This point, Paul is demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ. And what's the response for us? The response for us is to believe upon him. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might, again, if, let's just say that you're one of those individuals who are really just, this message is not sitting well with you. You don't like it. It, it seems unfair. It's unfair that by one man's condemnation, I'm guilty, that I'm corrupted. By one man's condemnation, that I am under condemnation and judgment. I say, you're right, it is unfair. It's unfair that a righteous man who never sinned should bear our sins and transgressions. And you're right, it is unfair 
that an innocent man would be declared guilty because of our actions, our sins, and he was. And it is unfair that a sinless man would die so that we could have life. That is unfair. And it certainly is unfair that, we, that he, this sinless one, this righteous one, would be mistreated so that God could pour out his grace and gift upon us to bless us. That is entirely unfair. And yet that is the act of God's love towards us, that he would show us that kind of grace and love. So my exhortation and encouragement to you is if you're struggling with this, turn to Christ. Turn and believe upon him. Turn and surrender to him. Turn and be saved. Turn and find grace. Turn and receive innocence. Turn and be declared righteous. Turn and be delivered. Turn and find life. Because in Christ, there is deliverance. God was unfair to Christ so that he could be gracious to us. And Christ willingly took that upon himself as an act of love to deliver us. That is the riches of God's gospel that he proclaimed to us that we embraced so that our response then is just a humble dedication and loyalty to God for all that God has done for us. You know, Christian, I think the gospel produces within us such a humility because we recognize we are unworthy of God's grace and favor. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for what you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. Indeed, he is superior. Indeed, he is worthy of all of our devotion. Indeed, this message is truly encouraging to our own hearts for it is in Christ alone that we have hope, hope of life, hope of deliverance, that you've manifested your great love Whenever we're doubting, whenever we've grown weary, whenever we seek to fall short in our own waywardness, may we go back and remind ourselves of this marvelous grace so that we would be energized again to keep striving. And we pray that as we look ahead to the chapters ahead and we see the sanctifying work of grace in our life, may we be ever mindful of what you've delivered us from so that we would strive to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you've done for us through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.